The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. 1 Corinthians 1, 1-9 Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. So I do invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We are not beginning a series through the book of 1 Corinthians. I know that's normally what we do. Uh, here on Sunday mornings as walk straight through books of the Bible, but uh, we've got six weeks between now and the beginning of the season of Lent, and so we are starting a smaller six-week series simply entitled Family Meals. And all I really want to do this morning is attempt to explain that title, Family Meals. For, for me, growing up, family meals were a norm in my house. Uh, they still are in my house, but they were a norm in my house growing up, and you were expected to show up at mealtime to eat with the whole family, and you were to eat whatever was served. Uh, there was to be no complaining, or my parents would make sure that I knew the meal was a gracious gift. I didn't work for it. I didn't earn it. I didn't make it. All of these meals were graciously given, and if I wanted sustenance, I knew when and where it would be served. All I had to do was show up ready to receive. My other option was to starve. Family meal. My parents weren't that cool. I was just kidding. But they would tell me that. You can starve. Family meals were the means of my survival or you could say my perseverance in life. They were the means of my growth. They were, uh, as a free gift from my parents, they were a means of grace. Shades, we, we just finished studying the book of Revelation together, a book that calls us, called us constantly to persevere, specifically to persevere in clinging to Christ all throughout of our lives. And the book of Revelation promised us that God would provide all we needed, all the power we needed to do that clinging to Christ, all the power we needed to persevere. My question now is how? Like having constantly heard that call over a series of eight months, my question is how, how God, how you promised to provide all I need to persevere, how are you going to provide all we need to persevere to keep clinging to Christ right now? Like right now, God, like amidst this pandemic, how are we supposed to persevere as a people who have joy in Jesus amidst the isolation and the loneliness, the sickness, the death, the job loss, the hardships? Right now, this moment, today, like how is God providing all we need to persevere as his people when the political idolatry that we read about in Revelation is trying to tempt every one of us to embrace it? 
Shades this week, a cross and a noose were erected on the grounds of our capital before it was stormed. And many of those people claim to belong to the kingdom of God. But they are equating and conflating the kingdom of God with this country. Claiming to worship Christ, they are caught up in a cult of our president's personality. And I think, I think our first reaction when we see that is to say, thank goodness that's not me. I, I think our first reaction, whether you're on the right or the left, is to say, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that I'm not, thank you God that I'm not like, that sounds an awful lot like a certain Pharisee from Luke chapter 18 who went up to the temple to pray alongside of a tax collector. And he begins his prayer with, God, thank you that I am not like this tax collector. And and Shades, whenever, whenever our conversation to God or our reaction to something like what we've seen this past week, whenever our reaction begins with, thank goodness I'm not that, it takes different forms. Maybe if we're more on the right, it takes the form of, well, but, but what about this? What about this from the left? And what about this from the left? And what about this? And what about this? Thank goodness that's not me and I'm not like that. Or if you're more on the left, maybe it takes the form of, I told you so. I told you this is where it was all headed. Thank goodness I'm not complicit in in that. I think that is our, my knee-jerk reaction. And I begin to sound a lot like that Pharisee in Luke 18 when what I, we, as the people of God, need to do in reaction to something like this is to humble ourselves, to beat our breast and to first say, God, have mercy on me a sinner, and search my heart and see if there is any political idolatry in me. Shades, please, please hear my heart. I am not being partisan. I'm trying to be a pastor. My heart as a pastor is to call you away from any and all idolatry, including political idolatry. You can have strong political convictions. You can. But there is a massive, massive difference between political convictions that govern the way you vote and political idolatry that governs the one you worship. There is a massive difference between political conviction and cult-like loyalty. Shades, I would plead with you, do not worship. I don't care, right, left, center, doesn't matter. Do not worship a party, a politician, or a president as Savior. Revelation called. It called. We saw it. It called such blatant idolatry an abomination to the Lord. And when Christians engage in such idolatry, when I engage in such idolatry, it makes people want to walk away from Christ. Perhaps it's made you feel that way. People who claim to be Christians, this is the thing, this is what they, I, I don't want anything to do, I'll walk away from the church, I'll walk away from Christ, I'll walk away from whatever. In the midst of this, how are we going to persevere as the people of God? How's God providing all we need to persevere in clinging to Christ? And not just in the midst of everything that's going on globally, but how about personally, wherever you are? In the midst of a struggling or failing marriage, in the midst of struggles with singleness, in the midst of financial difficulties or anxiety or depression, and the list goes on and on and on. In, in other words, we could sum all this up by saying in the midst of a post-Genesis 3 world, 
How is God providing all that we need to persevere until we reach the world of Revelation 22? She means, I think, I think he is doing it through family meals. Something that sounds so mundane, so non-spectacular, so unimpressive, so normal. How's God providing everything we need? I, I think he's doing it through family meals. Just like my family meals for me growing up, just like those daily, regular meals are what sustained me, what made me persevere, made me grow. Just like that, God has provided regular means that feed us, not physically but spiritually. Regular means he has provided that feed our faith. He has provided meals for his family, family meals that are a means of our daily perseverance, means of our daily growth. They are the means of grace. Let me show you what I mean. Start reading with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This this is the standard opening form of an ancient letter. You can find it all across the place in Paul's letters. tells us who the letter's from. Paul tells us who it's to, the church in Corinth, Greece. Now, Corinth, I don't know if you've ever been there. I've had the pleasure of going there before. It's a really cool place. It is located between the mainland and the Peloponnesian Peninsula of Greece. If you look at a map, it almost looks like they're two separate pieces of land, but they're not. They're connected by this little bitty strip, and right on that little strip is where you will find Corinth. It's got a port on both sides. There's a canal today, but that canal didn't exist until about 100 years ago. But they had a port on both sides. So it became, in the ancient world, this massively popular city of, of trade. And as a result, it was incredibly wealthy. It had all these travelers, so it was a cultural melting pot. It was, you, could, you could find everything in Corinth, every sort of religion, every sort of philosophy. You could find money. You could find every sort of sexual pleasure. To be a Corinthian girl, that was a slang term on the street. I'll let you look up what it means. You could find every sort of sports. They were second only to the Olympics. One commentator I read said that this place was like Los Angeles, New York, and Las Vegas combined. And if you go back to Acts chapter 18, you can read about Paul visiting this city and planting a church. He stays there for a little while teaching them, but then he moves on, leaving this fledgling church in Las Vegas. What could go wrong? A lot. <laughs> And if you read Paul's letters to Corinth, and we don't even have all of them. I mean, just by what he writes, we know there's at least two others that he wrote to them. If you read his letters to Corinth, a lot did go wrong, and he has a lot more to teach them. Because the Corinthians couldn't help but be heavily influenced by their surrounding culture. What the culture around them promoted as powerful and wise. The Corinthians were very susceptible to say, okay, yeah, we'll promote that within our church as powerful and, and wise. You can see, if you just read through 1 Corinthians 1, you can see this through many different things. For instance, you can see it uh, in how the Corinthians thought about their preachers and preaching. The surrounding culture said, it's a wise thing to attach yourself to a powerful teacher. 
It was very common in Corinth to have traveling teachers come through, teaching all sorts of philosophies. And you could attach yourself to one and kind of promote your own social status. If you were attached to a really popular, powerful speaker, it didn't really matter what the content was, as long as they were really gifted in Greco-Roman rhetoric. They sounded good. They captivated an audience. It was powerful whatever they had to say. That was powerful and wise. And so you can read 1 Corinthians and see that the Corinthians themselves had divisions in their own church, dividing themselves up amongst different preachers, detaching themselves to try and promote their own reputation. The surrounding culture was influencing this church. You can see it not just in how they related to preachers and preaching. You can see it in how they treated the Lord's Supper. We'll get there, 1 Corinthians 11. Not this week, in later weeks. But you can see it in how the Corinthians treated the Lord's Supper. Again, in their surrounding culture, dinner parties were a very popular and normal part of the culture. And what you would do in these dinner parties is you threw them in order to exert and show off your social status. You seated people according to their social status, rich, poor, and you displayed who who was at the top of the food chain by where they sat and the portions of what they got to eat, usually. And so... The Corinthian Christians said, the culture says that's wise and powerful. We'll do that. And when they would gather for communal meals, which often included the Lord's Supper, as far as we know, they'd separate themselves, poor and rich, often giving the poor so little they wouldn't even have enough to all partake in the Lord's Supper. And you see their surrounding culture influencing how they approached everything, what they saw as powerful and wise. You can see it, not just in preaching and the table, you can see it in how they approach prayer and worship together. I told you that their culture at large was, has had mixtures of all sorts of religions and you were considered to be a really spiritual person. The more ostentatious your spiritual displays of power, supposed power were, the more you could harness prophecy or even speak in other languages or any of these kinds of things that were ostentatious displays of spiritual power, you were considered to be spiritually superior. So the Corinthians said, our culture says that's wise and powerful. We'll say that's wise and powerful. And as you read through 1 Corinthians, you can see how their praying and worshiping together became about showing off how spiritual they were to one another. Proving that they were more empowered, more filled with the Spirit. You can raise your hand. I raise my hands higher. Mm, mm. How about those apples? This church was being heavily influenced by its culture regarding what was powerful and wise. And in reality, none of that was going to empower them to survive. None of that was going to empower them to persevere in clinging to Christ. None of that, what the culture said they needed, none of that was what they needed amidst their culture. And shades, none of it is what we need. In order to persevere, what, what, what's God going to provide us with in order to powerfully persevere in this life? We don't need what our culture claims is powerful and wise in this life. The church doesn't need political power and persuasive politicians in order to persevere. That will not empower us to persevere in clinging to Christ. We, we don't need social standing or, or wealth or clout or influence. We don't even need to be personally powerful and, and gifted. 
What do we need? The answer of 1 Corinthians and the answer of the whole of Scripture is we need God's grace through Christ. What do we need God to provide us with in order to persevere? We need God's grace through Christ. This is what Paul has already begun to declare to us simply in the way he's described himself in the Corinthians in his greeting. Look at it again. He said this of himself. He is, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. In other words, he's not an apostle because he has powerfully persuasive speech that the Corinthians value. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 10 will tell us what the Corinthians thought about Paul's speech. They said that his bodily presence was weak and his speech was of no account. Paul's not an apostle because of what they think is powerful and wise. Paul's an apostle not because of Corinthian qualifications, but because of the call of Christ. God's grace to him through Christ. And the Corinthians... They're not a church because of their qualifications, but because of God's grace to them through Christ. Look at what Paul calls them again. He calls them the church of God. You belong to God. You're his possession. He's what makes you a church. You're the church of God that is in Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus. In other words, Corinth, God saved you, sanctified you, made you holy. God made you holy in Christ Jesus by his grace to you through Christ. Not because of any qualifications. Paul makes that explicit in verse 26. Look down at it. He says, For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Look at verse 30. And because of him, you are, because of him, because of him, not your qualifications, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Paul says, Corinth, and I say, shades, God didn't save Paul or you because of worldly standards of power and wisdom, but because of his grace poured out to you through the cross of Christ, which to the world looks weak and foolish. The cross does not look powerful and wise. It looks weak and foolish. Look at verse 23. It says so. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, not power to the Jews. It's a stumbling block. It looks weak. Jews believed anyone hung on a tree was cursed because that's what the Old Testament said. It's in in a display of strength. It's a display of weakness. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. It's not wisdom. It's foolishness. Verse 24, but to those who are called by his grace, your eyes are open to what the cross actually is. Not what it looks like to the world, but what it is. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Shades, God has called you, saved you by his foolish, weak grace through Christ. Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. He is foolish, weak grace. He has called you, saved you by what the world sees as foolish and weak. His grace to you through Christ. Shades, God hasn't just called you by that grace. He keeps you by it. 
We're at a hinge in what we're looking at this morning. This is a massively important turning point. God doesn't just call you by his grace through Christ. He keeps you. He doesn't just call you by what the world sees as weak and foolish. He keeps you by what the world sees as weak and foolish. The kingdom of God will never be sustained by what the world sees as powerful and wise. If it is, it is being sustained by something other than the grace of God through Christ. Because the grace of God through Christ comes through a cross, and it looks like foolishness and weakness to the world. He saved you, called you through what the world sees as foolish and weak. He will keep you through what the world sees as foolish and weak. He will keep you by his grace. We've seen that God called Paul by his grace. I want you to see he also kept him by his grace. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 10. Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Save me by his grace. Call me by his grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace that called me, it was not towards me in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of the other apostles, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul says he was called by the grace of God, and then he worked harder than any other apostle, preaching, planting churches, being on mission. And Paul says, but none of that was by my own strength. It was by the grace of God. He called me by his grace. He kept me by his grace, empowered me day by day by his grace. That's true for Paul, and the same is true for the Corinthians. They were called. We saw that by the grace of God. They're kept by the grace of God. Look at chapter 1 and verse 4. Right after his greeting, Paul launches into thanksgiving. And what is he thankful for? I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Going to show you in just a minute. That's a lot more than just the initial call to salvation. That becomes obvious by what he keeps saying. He describes this grace that was given to them in Christ Jesus. I give thanks always because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech, in all knowledge. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Corinth, Paul says, you were called into the fellowship, into fellowship with Christ by the grace of God, called by his grace. And, Paul says, I'm giving thanks to God right now in this moment because I know he has provided all the grace needed to keep you clinging to Christ. Paul says, look at it. He says, God is graciously enriching you. Specifically, Paul says that he has enriched you with all speech and all knowledge. We'll talk just more about that in just a minute about how that's that's not at all the speech and the knowledge valued by the Corinthian culture, but speech and knowledge that the culture considers weak and foolish because it's the speech and knowledge of the cross. And Paul says that through this weak and foolish speech, Corinth, you're not lacking anything. 
You're not lacking anything you need. God is providing all the grace you need to persevere until the end. Is that not what he says? Until the revealing, the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is sustaining you. He says that explicitly. He is sustaining you to the end. God is faithful. He's keeping you. He's doing it by His grace. Paul, called and kept by the grace of God. Corinth, called, kept by the grace of God. And Shades, you, called, kept by the grace of God. I keep saying that now, kept by the grace of God, and I wonder if it's confusing you at all. We talk a lot Protestant Christians, we talk a lot about being called by grace, saved by grace. But kept? It's confusing for many people because all too often we have a truncated view of grace and a truncated view of salvation. All too often we equate salvation with justification. Justification is being made right with God by Christ being our substitute on the cross, bearing my sin and the death that it deserved. Therefore, I'm justified. I'm made right with God. My sins have been graciously pardoned. And we say, that is salvation. And yes, it is. Salvation is justification. Grace is pardon. But if we stop there, that's a truncated picture. That's not the whole of what salvation is that we get from Scripture. Salvation doesn't stop with justification. It includes sanctification. That by God's power, we are being daily conformed to the image of Christ. According to 2 Corinthians 3.18, that is a gift of God's gracious work by the power of His Holy Spirit. Salvation is not just justification. It includes sanctification. Grace is not just pardon. It also includes power. Christ purchased the Holy Spirit empowering you. That's part of salvation. And salvation doesn't stop there either, for salvation also includes glorification. In other words, we talked about that a lot at the end of Revelation, did we not? We will make it all the way home, perfected in the presence of Christ in the new creation. That is His freely given promise of grace. Shades, salvation is justification, sanctification, and glorification. Grace is pardon. Yes, it's also power, and it is promise. My question for you is which part of that did Christ purchase on the cross? All of it. It's not a trick question. Christ purchased salvation. Meaning he did not just purchase your justification, the pardon of your sins. He also purchased your sanctification, guaranteeing that by the power of his spirit, you will be conformed to Christ. He purchased your, just, your glorification. You will, by his promise, make it all the way home. He didn't purchase part of that. He purchased the whole of it. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, not part of the way, the whole way all the way home, that he might justify us, sanctify us, glorify us. This is all grace because it was all purchased by Christ. It's all a gift. It all comes to us through Christ. What do we need to persevere in this life? We need God's grace coming to us through Christ. 
Because it's not just justification, it's sanctification. It's what we need right here until we reach glorification. We need God's empowering grace coming to us through the cross of Christ. Not just the grace of justification, but the ongoing empowering grace of sanctification. The question becomes, how do we receive that? Paul says, through family meals. Through family meals. In other words, through means. Our God is a God of means. He loves to work His power through things. Think about it this way. When you received the grace of justification, made right with God, how did it come to you? Yes, by faith. Everybody's a good Protestant. Check mark. Yes, it came to you by faith. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But through what means? The means of hearing the gospel. Whether you read it, whether you heard it preached, whether somebody shared it with you personally, God's grace came to you by means of the word. Romans 10, 14. How are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? Verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It comes through a means. God is a God of means. He created your faith by means. And he sustains your faith by means. He justified you through means. He sanctifies you through means. Just like family meals sustained me in my growing up life, God has family meals to sustain your faith. They are the means of his sustaining, sanctifying grace. What are these means? What are the meals? Ongoing, regular meals by which God feeds your faith. Ironically, they are the very things that the Corinthians are trying to use to feed their own pride. We mentioned preaching, or the Word. And preachers, we mentioned the table, we mentioned prayer, we mentioned worship, all these things that they're trying to use to feed their own Pride. As you read throughout 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about these very things as means of God's grace. He talks about preaching as a means of grace, communion as a means of grace, prayer, worship as a means of grace. Many more things he talks about as means of grace, but they can all fall under those headings in one way or another. The point being that all these things that the Corinthians are using as a means to promote themselves, Paul says these are the means God uses to promote and point us to Christ. These are the means of God pouring out his empowering, sanctifying, sustaining grace in our lives. Take, take preachers in preaching for just a moment. The Corinthians used this, as we said, to promote their own reputations. But listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 6. What then is Apollos? Apollos was a preacher and teacher. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom? Through means. They're means. Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Paul says this isn't about the preacher. They're just the means. 
through which God works to pour out His grace to grow your faith. He uses an agricultural metaphor. God's growing your faith through this means. He goes on to use a construction metaphor. God's building up your faith through these means. Yeah, you may have different people who are laying a foundation in your life and building on that foundation. But this is coming. This is a means of God's grace. It's being used to grow your faith. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 1, Paul elucidates this further. He says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse 5 says, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In other words, I didn't come to you with the Greco-Roman rhetoric that you're used to. I want you being impressed with me. I didn't come to you with the latest self-help schemes, YouTube life hacks, latest and best TED Talks. I didn't come to you with the latest best-selling books. Paul says, and I pray this is the same thing that I bring to you, Shades. Paul says, I came with what the world thinks is weak and foolish, the gospel of Christ crucified. I came with just that, Paul says, so that. When your life is turned upside down and changed completely, you'll know for a fact it was not by the wisdom of man, but solely by the power of God that comes through the gospel. Shades, the gospel, the word of God, is the means by which God creates and sustains your faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. That's, just not, that's not just initial faith, the creation of faith, that's the sustaining of faith. The word of God is the means by which God creates and sustains your faith. Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This is the means, this is the meal, this is the meal that feeds your faith. And Paul will go on to show us how the gospel feeds us not just through the proclaimed word, the word proclaimed, but through the word visualized. He'll go on to show us how the gospel feeds us through the table. Communion rightly celebrated is a means of grace, a meal by which God feeds and strengthens your faith. We're going to give a whole week to each of these later in this series, so don't worry if you're like, how is communion a means of grace? We're going to talk about that. Paul will show us this about prayer and worship as well. That they are a means of grace. He's actually already hinted at this. Look at 1 Corinthians 4, I mean, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 4 again. Let's look at it one last time. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 4 through 7. I give thanks to my God always because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ. What grace? He tells us that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. In other words, the fact that God has justified you by His grace through the gospel was confirmed, Corinth. It was confirmed among you. How? By Him continuing to pour out His grace and sanctification. He's continued to enrich you through all speech and all knowledge. These are spiritual gifts that God has poured out among them. You can see that just by looking at the first few words of verse 7. So that you're not lacking in any gift. He's giving you all speech, all wisdom. So that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul will go on to show the Corinthians that when they gather together to pray and to worship, speech and wisdom are 
not to be used for self-promotion like their culture claims. No, God gifts us to use these things to promote Christ to one another. In fact, Paul will show us that God gives every single member of the church so that we may all point one another to the gospel. All of these gifts, all of our prayer, all of our praise, they are means of grace, meals by which God feeds our faith. And they are family meal shades. Every time Paul says the word you in verses 1 through 9, it's plural. Our modern English doesn't really help us out right here. Uh, You'll just have to read it in southern English in your head. Y'all. Every single time you read you, say y'all. In other words, Paul is saying church. Y'all, together. They would be gathered to hear this read. Y'all, God pours out His grace to y'all, together. As you engage the Word, together. As you gather around the table, together. As you pray, together and worship, together. He feeds your faith in these family meals. I'm not saying saying that God doesn't feed our faith as individuals. Of course He does. But in the coming weeks, we will talk about how even that is connected to the church community all throughout the New Testament. And right here, Scripture is emphasizing the feeding of our faith in gathered community, which I want to say a word to everybody watching the live stream. I Right now, we recognize gathered community. It doesn't look like it normally does. Okay? We, it's got to be physical and digital. And, and this is not ideal. We all know this is not ideal. Everybody sitting in this room, everybody sitting at home, we all know this is not ideal. But I want you to know that we are thankful for you. I am thankful for you. You are not forgotten. And if you are watching via the live stream, you are gathered with us by spirit. You are a part of this gathering right here. Scripture is emphasizing the feeding of our faith in gathered, which right now has to look like this, but he's emphasizing the feeding of our faith in gathered community, emphasizing family meals, feasting together on his grace through the word, through the table, through prayer, and through praise. This is what we need. This is what we need to persevere in this life, clinging to Christ, does this sound foolish to you? Does it sound weak? Like I wonder if you're not thinking, Jonathan, are you really saying that amidst all we're experiencing on the global and the personal scale, do you really think amidst all of this that what we need is the word, table, prayer, and praise? Yes, Shades. I do. For these are the gifts that God gave us when he created us. All Adam and Eve needed to sustain them through life was the word that God gave them. The table he set before them through Eden to walk with him in prayer and praise. It's all they need. He gave them all they needed. Even after Eden, in a post-Genesis 3 world, this is what we still need until we reach the new world of of Revelation 22. 
I know that because all throughout Scripture, this is what God's people consistently need, no matter when, and especially when they find themselves in dire, difficult circumstances. Don't look just to Eden. Look at the Exodus. This is what God's people needed for the Exodus. He poured out His grace to them in the Exodus through the Passover meal, through the giving of His word at Mount Sinai, through Moses interceding in prayers as He made them a people of His praise. These were the means He used to sustain His people as they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. That's the place where they learned the truth of Deuteronomy 8 and verse 3, that man shall not live by bread alone. What do you mean we're not going to live by bread alone? We're in a desert. No, you're going to live by every word that comes from my mouth. That's what you need. He took them through a desert, us, our people, through a desert for 40 years to teach us this truth, that this is what we need. It's what God's people needed in the Exodus. It's what God's people needed in exile. Just go back and look at the life of Daniel. What sustained Daniel as he faced the fall of his homeland, corrupt governments and politicians, even as he stared down death in a lion's den? What sustained him? Was it not following God's word with his community, his three friends, as best as he could? Was it not regularly giving himself to prayer and to praise? In Eden, in the Exodus, in the exile. This is what God has given his people to sustain them, to persevere all the way through this life. And it's not just what he gave us in Eden, the Exodus, the exile, is what he has given to his ecclesia, the church. It's the Greek word for church. It's the only way I could get another E out of it. Sorry about that. Just go back and read Jesus' words in John chapter 13 through 17. It's the Last Supper discourse. His disciples are about to face the most dark moment of their life, and then they're going to head into days of trial and tribulation. He tells them as much. What does he give them? A meal. His word. He prays. Father, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. He prays for them. He sings with them. God sustains us through the wilderness of this world as exiles in this world. Even if we face death, even if and when we face death, He sustains our faith by His grace. He feeds it through the unimpressive, seemingly weak and foolish reality of family meals. Shades, don't be like Corinth who thought they needed what the world called powerful and wise. Things that I am trying to call us to as a community, this is not sexy discipleship. This does not sell in the top ten at the Christian bookstore, if there is still such a thing. It doesn't sell in the Christian section on Amazon. What sells is the newest, latest thing, the quick fix, the next Christianized TED Talk. What sells is thanksgiving, the big, the impressive, but thanksgiving will not sustain you. Three regular meals daily will. The word, the table, prayer, praise, shades to faithfully persevere in this life, to cling to Christ and show his worth to the world. We don't need what this world says we do. We don't need political power, worldly wealth, or social status. We don't need a kingdom like theirs. Our kingdom is like a mustard seed. 
All the things that the Corinthians craved, the things that we think are necessary, we don't need any of them. What we need is God's grace through Christ, and it comes to us through family meals. Shades, I have one question for you this morning. Are you hungry? Just like me as a kid, I knew when and where the meals came. We know when and where family meals are served. We know the regular means of grace where God has promised to feed our faith. Word, table, prayer, praise. We know. Are we putting ourselves in the path where His grace most commonly flows? It's like Zacchaeus. You remember Zacchaeus? Wee little man. Wee little man was he. Nobody else sang this. The kid climbed up in the sycamore. Okay, yeah. He heard that Jesus was passing through his city and he put himself in Christ's path. That's what we do with the means of grace. We put ourselves in the path where God has told us his grace will pass. Shades, do we put ourselves in the path of grace? Do, do we pull up a chair to family meals ready to receive God's grace by faith? Grace is always received by faith. Always. In other words, Shades, you... You can attend church, you can watch the live stream, you can hear the word preach, participate in communion, you can pray, and you can sing and receive nothing if it's not done out of a heart of faith. These means of grace that we've talked about, they're not faucets of grace that we can just turn on and off just by doing them. That's, that's the Catholic view. You just do it and you're receiving grace. That's, that's not what we believe because that's not what Scripture teaches. The means of grace are not faucets, they are fountains and they flow forth from Christ. And Christ must be received by faith. We don't control grace. We receive it by faith. Zacchaeus was not in control of Christ that day in the city of Jericho, but he did position himself in Christ's path, and he did receive him by faith. This is what we do with the means of grace. This series is meant to invite you to pull up a chair at this family meal and to learn how to feast by faith. We're going to walk through how do we put ourselves in a position to receive the sustaining grace of God through the word when we're together, through the table when we're together, through praying together, through singing together. You're invited through this series to pull up a chair to this family meal and feast by faith. Shades, are you hungry? Feast at the table your father has prepared for you. No other. Come, feast by faith on the grace of God in Christ at his family meal.